Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Welcome back to our DG reading. We are looking at Christ's call to discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce. Now we're looking at uh, page 46 to 57. And today we are actually beginning a new section looking at the path of discipleship. So on chapter 4, we have the path of obedience. The path of obedience. Now James begins by quoting from Luke 6, 46 to 49. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and destruction was complete. Luke 6, 46 to 49. is how James begins. Now after the first three chapters of this book, with their emphasis upon self-denial, submission, and persevering in following Jesus Christ as a disciple, you may be feeling like the girl who talked to me after I had preached on cross-bearing. She had the idea that if she took what I said seriously, she would have to stop doing everything she enjoyed. She liked her job, she would have to give that up. She had friends she was comfortable with, she would have to drop them. She was thinking that the only way she could deny herself, take up her cross, and follow Jesus was if she went to a remote region of the world and served God miserably as a missionary. The girl was on the wrong track, of course, as you may be if you are having similar thoughts. But it was not a simple matter to answer her. On the positive side, there is a good chance that God will not want her to do anything of the sort. If the Lord has given her abilities that she is using in a worthwhile job, which she shows by her enjoyment of it, and if he has given her supportive Christian friends, there's a high probability that in the foreseeable future, at least he will want her to stay right where she is. Taking up a cross is intended to is not intended to make anyone miserable. And in any case, it probably has very little to do with quitting one's job and going off to a foreign country as a missionary. On the other hand, it is possible that the Lord could lead in that way. Her job might not be the right job, even though she now enjoys it. And her present friends may not be God's final plan for her life. One thing I told her, is that God is full of surprises. It is what we should expect just by looking at the universe. Nature surprises us by a sudden burst of beauty, by the wise and sometimes humorous behavior of animals, by the action of subatomic particles, by black holes, quarks, and quasars. Following the Lord Jesus Christ as his disciple may be puzzling at times even difficult. But it is not dull. Christians are sometimes disciplined by God, but their life with God 
is much closer to being a grand adventure than a punishment. Another thing I told her is that discipleship nevertheless involves obedience. Obedience? Right here, many people's antenna go up and they become worried. Obedience does not fit their, their idea of what is adventuresome or fun. Obedience sounds like the military. Adventure? Well, that is like sailing a boat around the world with no time limits and no agenda. Actually, a vacation free from time limits can be pretty dull, as people who have tried it testify. And an obedient, disciplined life can be enjoyable. In our contemporary world, there are probably no more disciplined and instinctively obedient men and women than astronauts, military personnel, and scientists. Yet what an adventure they have walking on the moon or planning to build and operate a space laboratory. We begin with a new subtitle here, Profession Without Practice. Jesus was not thinking about adventure when he spoke of obedience in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. He was thinking of a life able to produce the fruit of good works and righteousness, or a life able to stand against life's tempests. As we see in Luke 6, 43 to 49. But in speaking of obedience, he was certainly emphasizing its importance and establishing it as an essential element in the Christian life. Apparently, he had been followed by people who made verbal profession of discipleship. They called him Lord, which means that they were calling him their master and were putting themselves forward as his servants. But they were disregarding his teaching. Jesus showed the impossibility of this intrinsic contradiction by asking pointedly, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As you see in verse 46. Jesus cannot be our Lord without obedience. And if he is not our Lord, we do not belong to him. We are like a man whose house will be swept away by a flood. What a great problem this is, profession without practice. And what a disaster. It has been a problem all through biblical history. It was true in Israel. On the day before the prophet Ezekiel learned of the fall of the city of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, God appeared to him to explain why this was happening. The explanation was in terms of of the people's empty profession. God told Ezekiel, Your countrymen are talking together about you uh, by the walls and at the doors of their houses, saying to each other, Come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion. But their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. See this in Ezekiel 33, 30-32. Now, Ezekiel teaches us that Jerusalem was destroyed because the people 
were merely entertained by God's words and did not obey them. Isaiah said the same thing in words Jesus later quoted to his disciples. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See that in Isaiah 29 verse 13. Jesus used this text to reprove teachers of the law who made a profession of adhering to God's word when actually they were obeying only man-made regulations. He called them hypocrites and blind guides, as you see in Matthew 15, 1-14, and also Mark 7, 1-16. The problem of profession without practice was present in the early Christian community, as proved by the epistle of James. This is what James 1, 22-25 says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately he forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. James 1, 22-25 There is nothing so obvious as the truth that in religion, words without practice are worthless, even contemptible. Yet few things are so common. One commentator writes, Open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands. Open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands. But profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. It is what Jesus had in mind when he said that those who call him Lord, Lord, but do not obey him will be carried away by life's torrents. We go to the second subtitle here. How does Jesus speak? Thus far in this chapter, we have made two points that obedience is essential to the adventure of the Christian life, as well as to discipleship, which is actually the same thing, and that lack of obedience is quite common. But assuming that you are interested in this adventure and are willing to obey Jesus and not just mouth religious words, the question nevertheless remains, how do you know what Jesus wants you to do? Should you leave your job or stay with it? Should you be an astronaut or a missionary? How does Jesus speak? How does he exercise his proper lordship in your life? Now, several years ago, when I was in North California, I turned on the radio and had part of an an unusual religious program. It was called, Have You Had a Spiritual Experience? It was uh, conducted as a call-in talk show. A phone was given and listeners were invited to describe their spiritual experience over the air. Now, while I listened, two people told their stories. The first was a girl who explained that she had left a sudden urge to leave her room in Northern California and hitchhiked down the coast road to a place about midway between San Francisco and Los Angeles. When she reached that midpoint, she sensed 
that this was the place. So she got out of the car, went down the hill to the shore, found a cave where she camped out for two or three days and communed with nature. She got into the water and swam about among the rocks and seaweed as if she were alone at the dawn of creation. Then an animal came by and went off in a certain direction and she took this as a sign that it was time to go. She climbed back the hill, hitchhiked home. That was her experience. Now the other person told this story. A short while before, on the first Tuesday of November 1980, American, Americans went to the polls to choose Ronald Reagan over Jimmy Carter as president of the United States. She, she, she said that she had always been a Democrat. I went into that booth planning to vote for Carter, but something happened. A strange feeling came over me, and I pulled the lever for Reagan. She did not say whether she thought this experience was of God or the devil, but I think she believed it was the latter, since she was a Democrat. Is this the way God speaks to people? By feelings, intuition? Is this the way the Lord Jesus Christ exercises lordship over his disciples? This matter was of great concern to the Protestant reformers, for they lived in a day when very few people had a sense of a true word from God and were instead burdened by what were only the traditions of the church. Or if they claimed to have received a true word from God, it was often supposed to have come through dreams and trances and sudden movings of the Holy Spirit or personal intimations. Against these errors, the reformers stressed two things, the Bible and then the work of God's Spirit illuminating the Bible. This worked together. The reformers saw that God does not speak to a person through one or without the other. The reformers were not dry rationalists. Luther, Calvin, and the others had faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to convert men and women, interpret the word to them, and lead them spiritually. They believe this because the Bible has so much to say about it. The Bible says, The wind blows from wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, as you see in John 3, verse 8. The Spirit testifies because the Spirit is the truth, as you see in 1 John 5, 6. 5, 6. We have not received the Spirit of the world, by the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned and you see this from 1 Corinthians 2 12 to 14 the reformers were spirit oriented men but at the same time when they thought of the verses with their strong emphasis upon the Holy Spirit's revealing the ways and the will of God the reformers also remembered other verses that stressed the importance of the scriptures so they said with equal emphasis that it is only through the Bible that God speaks. 
Without the Holy Spirit, the Bible is a dead book. That is why a person without the Spirit cannot understand it. In order to understand the Word, to hear the voice of Christ in it, and begin to follow Him in obedience, the individual must be born again. In addition, he must wait on God and pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance. On the other hand, without the written Word of God, as an objective guide, claims to a special, a special leading of the Spirit, quickly deteriorate into the kind of foolishness had on the Have You Had a Spiritual Experience program. We move on then to the third subtitle here, Living in the Book. Everything I have been saying so far leads to a practical conclusion, and it is this. If the adventure of discipleship involves obedience to Jesus Christ as a certain does, and if Jesus Christ exercises his lordship over us so that we can obey him through the Bible, as we have seen to be the case, then there can be no real discipleship apart from Bible study. Bible study is no option for Christians. It cannot even be a minor occasional or vocational time pursuit. Bible study is the most essential ingredient in the believer's spiritual life because it is only in the study of the Bible, as that is blessed by the Holy Spirit, that Christians hear Christ and discover what it means to follow him. If you have been called by Christ and therefore sincerely want to hear his voice as he speaks to you through the Bible, you should do the following. One, study the Bible daily, as you see in Acts 17:11. We can study the Bible more than once each day, of course. There may be days when legitimate concerns consume the time we normally spend studying. But we should discipline our lives to include a normal daily period of Bible study, just as we discipline ourselves to have regular periods of sleep, brushing our teeth, meals, and so on. In fact, the comparison with regular mealtimes is a good one, for these are necessary if the body is to be healthy and do good work, or good work is to be done. On occasion, we may miss a meal, but normally we should not. In the same way, we must feed regularly on God's word if we are to become and remain spiritually strong. What happens if we neglect such daily Bible reading? We grow indifferent to God and lacks in spiritual things. We throw ourselves open to temptation and the sin that Israel follows. The regular time we set aside for Bible study may be long for those who are mature in faith and who have time for such study, perhaps an hour or two, even more. It may be shorter for those who are new in faith or who lead tight schedules, perhaps only 10 or 15 minutes. Whatever the length of time, it should be fixed and at a set period of the day. Where should this be? Again, this may vary from person to person. Many have found that the best time is the very beginning of the day. R.A. Torrey wrote, Whenever it is possible, the best time of this study is immediately after rising in the morning. The worst time of all is the last thing at night. Of course, it is well to give a little while just before we retire to Bible reading in order that God's voice may be 
the last to which we listen. But the bulk of our Bible study should be done at an hour when our minds are clearest and strongest. Whatever time is set apart for Bible study should be kept sacred for that purpose. The second one is to study the Bible systematically. You see in Joshua 1, 7-8. Now, some people read the Bible at random, dipping here or there. This may be characteristic of the way they do most things in life, but it is a mistake in Bible study. It leads to a lack of proportion and depth, which is often characteristic of American Christians. A far better system is a regular disciplined study of certain books of the Bible, or even of the Bible as a whole. New Christians should begin with one of the Gospels, perhaps the Gospel of John or Mark. After that, they should study the Acts, Ephesians, Galatians, Romans, or an Old Testament book like Genesis. It is always variable to meditate on the Psalms. Certain procedures should be followed during study. First, the book itself should be read through carefully as many as four or five times, perhaps one of the, these times allowed. Each time something new will strike you. Second, divide the book into its chief sections, just as we divide modern uh, books into chapters, not necessarily the same chapters as in our Bibles, subsections and paragraphs. At this stage, the object should be to see which verses belong together, what subjects are, were covered, and the sequence of the subjects. Third, these sections should be related to one another. Which are the main sections or subjects which are introductory, which make applications? At this stage, one should be developing an outline of the book and should be able to answer such questions as, what does this book say? To whom was it written? Why was it written? If you are studying Romans, for example, you should be able to say, this book was written to the church at Rome, but also to churches in all places and at all times. It says that we are lost in sin and that the answer to that sin is the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Its purpose is to explain the gospel. A minor purpose was to alert the Romans to Paul's desire to visit them on his way to a future ministry in Spain. You can now proceed to a more detailed study of the sections. What is the main subject of each section? What is it? What is said about it? Why is it said? To whom? And what are the conclusions that follow from it? It is helpful to watch the small connecting words like but, because, then, since, and therefore. Last, you can study key words. Begin by looking at other passages in the same book in which words occur. You can find this by your own reading or by using a concordance in which verses contained uh, containing a given word are listed. Simple concordances are in the backs of many Bibles. Now, suppose you are studying Romans 3, 21-26, and you wanted to learn more about the important word righteousness with which the section begins. And one key verse is 10-3, in which the righteousness of God is distinguished from our righteousness. Also, Romans 1.17 says that the righteousness of God is made known in the gospel. In all, righteousness is used 35 times in this one literal 
letter alone. And most of these uses throw light on one another. At this point, you may also observe the use of the word in other books of the Bible, perhaps using the chain reference system that sometimes that some Bibles provide. You can also use an English dictionary. Some large dictionaries contain the derivations of words, which also throw light on the meanings. The third one is study the Bible comprehensively. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 Alongside study of one book or a section of the Bible, there should be an attempt to become acquainted with the Bible as a whole. This means reading it comprehensively. True, many parts of the Bible will not appeal to us at first. That is natural. But if we never make an attempt to become acquainted with them, we limit our growth and may even warp our understanding. Paul told Timothy, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in all righteousness. See in 2 Timothy 3.16. Jesus will speak to you and tell you what to do, not only in the lead ink portions of those Bible that indicate his own words, but in many portions of scripture. The fourth one is study the Bible devotionally. Now there's a danger when we speak of daily, systematic, and comprehensive Bible study of encouraging a person to think that such study is therefore mechanical and can be pursued in the same manner as one would study a secular text. That is not the case. The Bible is not like other books that have been written by men or women and therefore contain part truth and part error and that at best only touches on the human level. The Bible is, the writ- is written by God and is therefore infinitely superior to all other publications. The purpose of our study is also different. In other books, we study to become wise. In reading the Bible, we study to know God, to hear his voice, and be changed by him through our obedience as we grow in holiness. The attitude of the student must also be different. We can approach other books pridefully, perhaps considering ourselves wiser or more knowledgeable than the persons who wrote them. We must approach the Bible humbly and with childlike faith. We must wait upon Jesus. Our prayer must be the prayer the age ally taught Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, as you see in 1 Samuel 3, verse 9. Also, if we really want the Bible to become part of us, so that the mind of Christ, which is expressed in the Bible, becomes our mind, then we must memorize sections of Scripture. Our education system does little to stress memorization today. But those who were educated a generation ago will testify that what they memorized then, whether simple verse or more complex passages from Shakespeare or another distinguished writer, have remained with them and have thereby become part of what they are. This is what we need as Christians. We need to allow the word of God to become part of us. To have that happen, we must memorize it. I have a friend who has an extremely busy schedule and who is under great pressures in his job. Nevertheless, he faithfully spends 20 minutes a day in an uninterrupted Bible study and in addition to that spends whatever time is necessary to memorize one verse each day. He has memorized a verse each day for the last five years and he testifies 
that this single most this is the single most important factor in his discipleship and spiritual growth. The fifth one is we should study the Bible prayer free. Quoting from Daniel 9, 1 to 3. It is impossible to study the Bible devotionally without praying, since we are coming to God in Scripture and must communicate with Him verbally if we do. But although prayer is part of devotional study of Scripture, prayer is worth stressing for its own sake, if only because we often neglect it. The best way to study the Bible is to encompass our study in prayer. Before we begin, we should quiet our hearts, saying, I am about to study the book that God has given me. In that book, I am going to meet him and hear the voice of my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What I hear, I want to obey. Then, having quieted our hearts, we should turn to God himself and pray, Lord God, I am turning to your word. By myself, I cannot understand it as I should. I need the Holy Spirit to instruct me and draw a proper response from me. What I understand, I want to obey. Help me to do that for Jesus' sake. We must then study the passage for the day, and as we find something that pertains directly to us, we must stop again and acknowledge that prayerfully. We must say, Lord God, I know you're speaking to me in this passage. I am beginning to understand what you want me to do. Help me to do it as soon as possible and make this principle a part of my mind and behavior so that when other situations of this kind emerge, I'll respond to them as this passage tells me I should and live more like Jesus Christ. Without regular personal Bible study and prayer, we are not really walking with Christ as his followers and we are certainly not obeying him in, in specifics. We look at the final um, subtopic on this, and this is the liberty of obedience as we come to an end. But suppose we do pursue regular personal Bible study and prayer. Suppose we earnestly seek to know the mind of Christ and obediently follow where he leads us. What do we find then? Some answer that we discover dull monotony or at... What do we find then, sorry? Some answer that we discover dull monotony or at best a list of rules to duly follow. This is generally said by those who have never taken on Christ's yoke. Those who have followed him find something different. They find adventure, which I was speaking about at the start of this chapter. They find freedom from self, even a freedom from rules in one sense, which is an amazing form of liberty. It was the discovery of this freedom that led Elizabeth Elliot to write The Liberty of Obedience. She maintains that it is only in setting out to obey Christ completely that we find true freedom. Jesus taught this too. He had been speaking of the source of his teachings, and many who listened had believed on him. Their belief must have been rudimentary, since no one, not even the disciples, understood what he was eventually understood that he was eventually going to the cross to die and thus provide redemption for his people. Nevertheless, this was real faith, and Jesus wanted to encourage it. He said, If you hold to my teachings, you are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. As you see in John 8, 31-32. This infuriated some of his listeners. They replied, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. 
How can you say that we shall be set free? As you see in verse 33. This was ridiculous, of course. For years, the Jews had been slaves in Egypt. During the period of the judges, there were at least seven occasions when the nation came under the domination of foreigners. There was a 70-year-long Babylonian captivity. Even as they talked to Jesus, these people were watched by Roman soldiers and carried coins in their purses that proved Roman's rule over Palestine. It was this that made them so sensitive and provoked the retort, We have never been slaves of anyone. But how did Jesus respond? He did not show that they were deluded in their thoughts about political freedom, although he might have done that. Instead, he spoke of bondage to sin and showed that true freedom consists in escape from sin through obedience to him. I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. If the Son sets you free, though, you will be free indeed, as you see in 34 and 36. Freedom comes only as we determine to follow Jesus. That freedom is the greatest freedom of all. That is the end of our chapter. Thank you so much for listening to me. See you next week. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gracepoint Church Podcast. For more information and for past episodes, please check our website, Gracepoint Church. 